And as you take your seats, please turn, turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, found on page 1011 in the Black Pew Bible there in front of you. We're reading verses 12 through 16. Remember that James, as we come to this text, wants you to become a mature Christian. It's what the word perfect back in verse 4 means. That you'd be lacking in nothing. You'd be full grown, mature, not a sapling anymore. J.C. Ryle, the great 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, he said, A boy, am I getting a lot, I'm getting a lot of reverb. Is that, are you all getting that as well? The same? Is that, I'm not hearing that? Yeah, okay. Bear, bear with me. Ryle says, A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it is full grown. Oh, that we would be full grown, mature. Oaks of righteousness bearing their fruit in season. Let's read our text. James chapter 1, starting at verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. See, James is worried about your deception. He's afraid that you will buy the lies of the evil one. To me, this evening's text almost feels like an intervention. He's sitting you down in the pew this evening, Pastor James, and he's confronting you on at least five different lies that you believe about your temptations. Temptations, when they come upon you as a Christian, James is going to address one by one of, for us through our text this evening. He's going to dismantle our lies and show us the truth. So that will be our outline, five lies and the truths that James is bringing to them. The first lie he points out, we might call it a lie about the stakes of your temptation, the stakes of the temptation. He's addressing that timeless, dubious cop-out that it's but a peccadillo. You know, it's a, it's a small sin that doesn't really matter. That's not that big of a deal. You know, everyone I know is doing it anyways. They seem fine. They seem to be functioning. They drink. They smoke. They sleep around. They have lots of fun. And their life seems just as good as anybody's. And Christians, don't you know, they're so apocalyptic about sin. They're always clutching their pearls about salty language or what. You know, consenting adults are doing in their bedrooms. That's the same lie that the serpent implies to Eve. It says, you will not surely die. 
That is, that the stakes really aren't life and death when it comes to sin. Or it's what Satan implies to Jesus when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Turn these stones into bread. What could it hurt? You're hungry after all. The stakes are not the salvation of the world. There's not true righteous sacrifice that's needed. It's what you're tempted to believe. The stakes are just not that high about the, the pictures you're looking at in your room alone at night. Or the, the stakes are just not that high daydreaming in your own mind about someone else's husband. Or the stakes aren't that high when you laugh at those jokes or break the Sabbath or dishonor your mother in that way. Or it's just not that big a deal to steal office supplies. But in contrast to the lies we believe about the, the stakes of sin and temptation, James he begins verse 12 with very elevated language, uh, robust biblical language. When he says, blessed is the man, every Bible student should, should sit up. They, they, they know that phrase. The very first phrase of all the Psalter, Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's the first line of the greatest sermon ever preached. And the second greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man, or the, the poor man in spirit. Or it ought to remind us further of the, of the blessings and curses that, that Moses and Deuteronomy lays out for those who would keep covenant or break covenant with God. No, these are grand words that James brings to this. He raises the stakes for us. Or, or we can keep reading. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial or temptation. That steadfast word, we've already come across that in James. That takes us back to verse 2 and 3 and 4. The steadfastness James is after for the one who would be complete. He's saying that the one who's steadfast, the complete, the mature in Christ, he knows the stakes are high. You know, this, it, this is, it's not like playing, you know, pickup sports in your backyard where the, the training doesn't matter, it's mostly for fun, and winning and losing isn't a big deal. No, the, the stakes are e eternally high. Look what he says there in verse 12. He says, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What is this crown of life here he mentions? There's two other places in the New Testament it's mentioned. Uh, both uh, 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul mentions it. Revelation 2.10, Jesus mentions it to the church in Smyrna. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians who are, you know, Corinth is the home of the Isthmian Games, which are in honor of Poseidon, a kind of, you know, a kind of Olympiad. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 9 that everyone who competes in the games... <coughs> goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it, that is train in righteousness, to get a crown that will last forever, Paul says. That is, the stakes here are eternal. Or as Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. <clears throat> that is, you know, the award show season that we're in with the, 
the Grammys or the Academy Awards or the Super Bowl or even the Congressional Medal of Honor have nothing on the awards, the awards show mentioned in verse 12. The stakes you see are for eternal life. And we might say by implication, the stakes imply eternal death. I think that's what's implied in verse 15. Skip down there. He says, desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown gives, uh, when it's fully grown brings forth death. As Terry mentioned this morning, that the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. There are no benign sins. They all metastasize, and they all must be dealt with harshly. Otherwise, it always brings forth death. This is what I, I try to explain to my children. You know, we, uh, Mary Lawrence had a, a hard weekend in this in some ways. Um, of learning the importance of always telling the truth. Trying to explain to my three-year-old that if I let you tell these small lies as you try to cover up your small disobediences and you get away with it and you get away with it and you start to expand these lies and the truth gets rather confusing and before you know it, you're lost in a web of lies and that brings forth death. You, you sow a thought, you reap an action, you sow an action, you reap a habit, you sow a habit, you reap a character, you sow a character, you reap a destiny. Sin brings forth death. This is one of the greatest lies Satan could get you to believe. That the stakes are low when it comes to sin and temptation. When the truth is that eternity is in the balance. Sin damns. It's not funny. It's no laughing matter. The God of all the earth, of all the universe, is a thrice holy God that must deal with sin and deal with it finally, and that day is coming. There is eternal crown of life for those who learn to deal with temptation. And there is death for those who do not. Victory over temptation and testing receives a crown of life. The stakes you see are high and not low. That's our first lie in truth. The second lie that James addresses is right there in verse 13a. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. You know, when Adam, when Adam turns to God and says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. You know, he, he's not even blaming the devil. He's not even saying the devil made me do it. It's worse. He's saying, God, you made me do it. You gave me the woman. And that's what we imply as well when we begin to blame our anger problems or our lust problems, or our spending problems, or our drinking on something like our family history. You know, I didn't choose my family. These proclivities, my genetics, Lord, you gave them to me. It's what we imply when we point to our biological, or psychological, or sociological explanations for our temptations and sins. When we make ourselves the victims of our sin rather than the responsible party, we not only lose our, our self-determinative dignity, that very thing that separates us from the animals who operate on instinct. No, we are responsible beings. 
Further, there's this implication we make. Whenever we begin to make that excuse, whenever we believe the lie that somehow I deserve this, this indulgence, that somehow when I'm believing I deserve this, that, that God is tempting me because he's keeping something I, I need or I've, I've earned. Well, that is, of course, never, ever the case. No, God himself, verse 12, cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. See, the lie is that I am being tempted by God, and the truth is that God tempts no one. It's not the teacher's fault, in other words, when, when you fail the test. Uh, the test might give us the occasion for the failure, but is never the cause of the failure. We need to have these two things clear in our minds for our students here this evening. The teacher of life is nothing but good and always has been and always will be. Indeed, the very definition of what good is is determined by God. Uh, the idea of goodness, the, the essence of goodness is tied up with God's being. If, if, uh, if, if God was doing something that wasn't good, it would be good because he was doing it. It's nonsensical and in the very least to call what God does evil or to accuse him of it. He allows the test. He allows the temptation. It is indeed the height of rebellion against God. His very being, nature, the order, the revelation of all that we have to claim that He is at fault. But the truth is further that the source uh, is not only not God, but that the source is you. That's what he says in verse 14. Look there. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By his own desire. It's not God's fault. It's yours. The source of temptation is not God, but comes from your very own heart, from your very own desires. The fall, you see, we believe this, that we're totally depraved. Every part of us, our mind, soul, body, will, twisted. You see, uh, the, the, the moral intuitions, the feelings that guide our lives, following your heart, foolish thing. We know that those things are crooked, twisted, not to be trusted in any way. Do not listen to your heart. Do not trust your feelings. You can't trust yourself. The sin, you see, the temptation even, comes from within. That's what James is explaining. See, the first lie we mentioned is the stakes are low and not high. The second lie is that the source is God and not you. The third lie, I think, is a further implication of the second lie. The third lie we believe about our temptation is that the temptations are just, just too strong. We believe lies about the strength of our temptations. That's what's implied in verse 13. You know, if God is tempting you, no, who can stand up to that? The strength of the temptation is just too strong. After all, it's your basic instinct. You couldn't help yourself. Uh, you're addicted after all. You've fallen so many times before. The temptation is just too strong. You know, I, I think of how many Hollywood movies seem to, to bear this argument. You know, the, the woman couldn't help but fall for that man even though she was married. You know, it wasn't her fault. Her husband was a dud. No, when you believe this lie that the temptations are just too strong, Satan 
He has you dead to rights. He, you begin to believe you're an addict, and so you have an excuse. You begin to believe you, you have no hope of truly changing, and so you won't. Satan wants you to believe the lie that temptation is too strong and you are just helpless. He wants you to deny, to doubt what the Bible spells out as clearly as possible. 1 Corinthians 10.13, the Bible is clear, the truth overwhelms it. Paul explains, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The lie we believe is that it's too strong. The truth is that God never lets you be tempted beyond what you can bear. James' implied argument here is that it is not, if it, that it is not from God, it is not too strong, you has, still have agency, it's not too late. You know, we, I think we sometimes smirk and joke about the seeming naivete of Nancy Reagan's anti-drug slogan, just say no to drugs. Of course, that it, things are complicated there, and I don't want to not deny that. But the truth of the Bible is that you can always say no to sin. You are responsible. Anything that would argue against that most basic fact of being a human who can say no to temptation is to deny the truth of the Scriptures. Which brings us to our fourth lie. We believe lies about the stakes of our temptation, the source of our temptation, the strength of our temptation. Number four, we believe lies about the, the speed of our temptation. I think this is what James is showing us in verse 14. Look there. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That is, it's not just automatic. It's not just all of a sudden. You know, often sin can feel like that. It, it, in fact, it's good to slow things down and to analyze what happened to watch the game film? It's easy to believe our sin and temptation happens so fast it's over as soon as it begins. Uh, perhaps you were working on a spreadsheet and then yourself find yourself being pulled on the internet to things you ought not go to. Or perhaps you were just shopping for normal essential groceries when you walk out the store having spent way beyond your budget. How did this happen? Or perhaps you were correcting your children, teaching them the way they should go. And all of a sudden, you blow up in anger, saying things you shouldn't be saying. It all happens too fast. The speed, you see. It's impossible. And that is a lie, that it all happens too fast. James says, look for the lure. There's always a lure. There's always an enticement, a desire. It's there in verse 14. Break the, break the game film down. Why were you angry? Every time you're angry, it's because you're not getting something you want. What do you want? What is the desire that's being denied that causes the flame to, to burst up? If you're angry, is it because you, you wanted your children's obedience and respect and you're not getting it? Or is this some kind of other misplaced anger that's coming out? When you look for pornography, what are you looking for? Is it because you're lonely? Is it because you're anxious? Are you seeking out comfort? If you're seeking out comfort, why are you going there? What is the lure, the trigger, the desire? 
And when Eve looks at the apple and notices that it's a delight to the eyes and good for food, she notices the least important things about the the fruit. She wasn't slowing things down. She didn't have her guard up. She missed the lure. The lure, the enticement was on the surface. In contrast to Jesus, when he's tempted, he saw the lure for what it was. Not just a temptation to feed himself from the the bread he could make from the stones. No, he saw it as a temptation to divert from the Father's will. He saw the high stakes. His mind was engaged enough to see the enticement and the lure. It really is a fishing metaphor here in verse 14. And you know the difference between you and a fish? You can tell the difference between a lure and the real thing. And not get hooked. When you see the lure, we are not meant to go up and inspect it, to sniff it out. No, you run. You make like Joseph. Chapter 39 of Genesis. He shows us the way. He streaks across the house. The missus grabbed his robe. He got out of there. Things, you see, do not happen so fast that you cannot slow things down, analyze them, examine them, identify the lure, and turn to the truth. The lie is that things go too fast. The truth is that you can slow them down and know what's happening. You can see the lure, the enticement, and know the desire. You must be able to identify the desire. You know, Martin Luther, it's one of my most helpful quotes. I don't know where it's from. Maybe it's not even from Luther. That, that uh, we, we can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Similarly, we might say, you can't notice... Uh, You can't help but perhaps notice the lure, but you can identify the lure and not bite. Dr. Piper would say that you have no longer than about six seconds to deal with that intrusive thought, that temptation, but something must be done. An analysis must be had, and the truth must be turned to. You see, we believe lies about the stakes, the source, the strength, the speed of temptation, But finally and briefly, we we believe all kinds of lies about the the fundamental nature of our temptations. Our cultural world wants you to believe that your temptations are merely biological, physical urges, or sociological, it's part of your socioeconomic familial background, or psychological, you know, it's not right or wrong, it's just going on within your mind. Satan wants you to believe these things, that your sin is nothing but accidental, that you are just broken and not willful. You don't have a corrupted heart. You're just a victim of your circumstances. So the world wants you to believe that the nature of your temptation, the nature of it, is explainable by every other kind of excuse, except by the nature of the temptation as James puts it out here for us. It wants us to have excuses that it's your culture's fault or the technology's fault or your parents' fault. The nature of temptation, according to James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is the nature is that it is a desire. Temptations are desires. And as desires, it comes out of the heart. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous book, The Freedom of the Will, basically argues that you always do what you want to do. That the will is indeed free in a sense. It's not absolutely free, nor is God's uh, providential hand, His determinative will, so determinative that you have no freedom. No, the truth is there's a, a compatibilism of the two extremes. 
You always do what you want to do. You always follow your desires. So that the nature of your temptation is that it's a desire, and the key to breaking the power of the temptation is to be curbing your desires for evil towards that which is good. Thomas Chalmers, the great 19th century Scottish preacher, writes the famous sermon, the expulsive power of a new affection. That is the the key to passing the outward tests and the inward temptations of life is really what James mentions back up in verse 12. He mentions it, he says, God has promised the crowns of life to those who love Him, to those whose hearts have an affection or a love towards God. If we're always doing what we want to do, the key to defeating temptation you see is turning our hearts. It is towards God, loving God, figuring out how to grow in God and our love for Him. So that when you are fighting temptation, you have to deal with it at the heart level, dealing with the affections and the desires. Chesterton is said to have said that the man who knocks at the brothel door knocks for God. The man who's looking for comfort, for identity, is looking for only what God can give him. What you think you want from that man or woman who is tempting you in the office, what you think you want from that handbag you know you shouldn't covet, the high you think you will have is truly only ever a counterfeit of the love of God, that which Christ offers, the joy, the peace, the satisfaction that's born up in Him. This is Augustine's great insight, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. The temptations of the world are entirely overwhelming unless we are filled in Christ. See, it's in Him and Him alone upon which the heart can truly rest. Every lure is a lie. The temptations are lies. So instead of looking to the porn or the alcohol or the money or whatever that thing that tempts you is, the key to the Christian life is looking to Christ for satisfaction. Our own Lord Jesus, He shows us the way. In the face of temptations, uh, we fight lies with the truth, with the Scriptures, even as He spoke the Scriptures to the devil. Uh, But He not only shows us the way, he, He is one who is with us. He who is compassionate upon us. Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, being tempted in every way as we were tempted. But He He not only shows us the way and has compassion upon us, of course, when we do fall, He is the one who saves, and saves to the uttermost. But He also not only shows us the way and has compassion on us and saves us from our sin and temptation, but He also empowers us. This is what James presumes here. That indeed, you know, how do you get a love for God when it's not naturally there? What do you do when you don't desire God? You look to the only one who can give a desire for God. You must call out to God. There is a spiritual miracle that must happen. There is a new birth that must come. There is a new heart that must be put into your chest. A change of affection, a change of desire. What we do is we gather Sunday by Sunday, Sabbath by Sabbath, Sunday morning by Sunday morning, Sunday evening by Sunday evening. 
we gather together and we massage the, the new hearts the Lord has given us that are prone to wander in the way they should go. We train our hearts as fickle as they might be, as already but not yet, as, as both sinful and yet justified. In the in-between, we train them in the go. We, we sing them the word. We preach them the word. We show them the truth. We sanctify them by the truth. Jesus says your word is truth. That's why you have to be here. We have to gather. We have to train our hearts in the right way so that when the temptation comes, we can identify the lure. We can see the lie so we don't fall for the continual lies that James addresses here. It's easy to love God and be full in Him when we're continually singing His praises, reciting His Word, meditating upon His truth. When Jesus defeats temptation, He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. James says in verse 16, don't be deceived. And may we not be.